Hey gang, welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast. On this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Grodegut, a seasoned farmer from Hereford, Texas. In this episode, we dive into the history of feedlots around the Hereford area and the overuse of the Ogallala Aquifer. Chris shares how he transitioned his farm from commodity crops to grass for grazing cattle, and why he believes that farming feed instead of food is not sustainable. We also discuss the importance of living within our ecological means and how antibiotic use in livestock affects our environment. Chris shares his expertise on the comparison of native and introduced grasses, as well as the role of prescribed fire in maintaining a healthy prairie landscape. So whether you're interested in farming sustainability or the future of our planet, this episode not to be missed. This episode is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals, the first step in regenerative agriculture. C90 offers a complete spectrum of natural minerals and trace elements that feed soil biology, enzymes, and fungi to help regenerate your soil matrix and improve soil fertility. Herd and pasture health starts with soil health, and C90 restores the optimal mineral balance needed for healthy, productive soil. Naturally unlock locked-up fertilizer nutrients, expand root networks, and reduce drought risk. And invest equally in this season and the ones to come. Give us a call today, and our experts will help develop a complimentary custom program that fits your operation. Call 717-580-1458 or visit www.sea-90.com. Available nationwide and around the world. Yo, what's good, my homies? It's your boy, Red Hills, and I'm here to tell you about these Bubble Link beef snacks. Let me tell you, they straight fire, you dig? I'm talking about real high-quality beef, seasoned to perfection, and slow-cooked to give you that melt-in-your-mouth taste. And let's not forget about the packaging. It's tight, it's fresh, and it's perfect for on-the-go snacking. Now, I know what y'all might be thinking. Red, ain't no beef snack gonna be good enough for me, but trust me, these Bubble Link beef snacks are straight-up game-changers. I'm talking about that real beef flavor, packed with protein and made with all-natural ingredients. So if you want to elevate your snack game, snack like a boss, then you got to try these Bobo Link beef snacks. I'm telling you, they're the real deal. And don't take my word for it. Try them out yourself and you'll see why I'm hooked. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Peace out and stay snacking, my homies. My name is Red Hills Rancher and I'm the steward of the Red Hills. And if you didn't know, you do now. Bow wow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, hey, y'all, welcome back. Another episode of Ranching Reboot. I'm joined today by Dr. For Chris Grotegut. Did I, man, did I say that right? Grotegut, but that's okay. Grotegut. Chris is a, a farmer, a veterinarian, and a stockman down around Hereford, Texas. And, um, well, we're going to talk about where we're at and where we're going here on the High Plains. So, Chris, welcome to Ranching Reboot. Thank you, Brian. Well, I... You know, I, I met you at Soil Health U uh, back in January, and that was really awesome. And, you know, just the few minutes that we had to talk, I was like, man, I really wish I could go go listen to your presentation. But uh, And I think you kind of said the same thing. But the same time I was doing my panel, you had the other half of everybody in another room. And uh, what were you guys talking about over there? What we were talking about was the move in our region uh, 
from irrigated agriculture toward back toward dryland agriculture and grazing systems and things like that and trying to give people an idea of looking at it differently because where we're at here on the southern high plains um we're very blessed with good fertile soil and flat land and just very similar to southwest kansas uh, and yet our problems are very much the same uh herford texas is a self-proclaimed beef capital of the world um heavy on self-proclaimed but um what we've got going on here the biggest problem we've got in this region is the Oglala aquifer continues to decline and we built this agricultural model for higher than uh long-term uh renewable or sustainable input so the, that the big change we're going to have to go through here is uh, is very obvious, but it's a, it's a cultural battle uh, from the standpoint of moving uh, businesses. I mean, we live in an area that just just like other parts of the United States, they're they're adding pack, uh, packing capacity to kill more cattle, uh, not necessarily small scale slaughter like like many of us think is 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 very viable across the United States. Um, you know, I know by some projections that they would increase the need for cattle. If all the plants were built and running that are in this area, they'd increase the number of fed cattle by 15%. Uh, and the reason I know those numbers, I sit on our regional water planning, uh, group out of Lubbock, Texas. And so we look at lots of data. We see lots of trends. Uh, we are blessed to see the truth and the not truth uh, given to us by government about what's really going on. Well, lots of cans of worms there, especially right at the end. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I hope that's a good overview. Now that maybe we have a hook set for, uh, for our listeners. Um, you said you're in Hereford, Texas. Tell me about your ranch and, uh, and tell me about how you got there. Okay. Uh, we have a very, uh, our our business actually the 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 our family came to this area in 1927. I had a great uncle come. My father immigrated from Germany in 1953 uh, to help him because he didn't have any children. Him him and a cousin both came, and um, then I came along in the 70s and and uh, started my little piece of the deal in 1988 and and. Uh, buying uh, a quarter section from a neighbor and we've grown our business uh by ranking scale we're not big but by farming scale we're pretty big um it's an eleven thousand acre farm in, in an 18 to 20 inch normal rainfall that ranges from three to 36. and so living through the three inch rainfall years and the 36 inch rainfall years it's quite a different management scenario we get to deal with pretty similar to where we're at here as far as rainfall wise and it just seems like you know you as far south as you are you probably get another three weeks of growing season on on both sides yes and we also get uh higher evaporation evapotranspiration rates than you guys get and uh, partly because of the the extra days and part of it because of the law of the the sunshine the, the amount of sunshine we have here we're, we have a lot of sunny days and and i think that's one of the reasons that um, in the fifties and sixties, whenever they started, um, trying to build feedlots and things like that, mud is a negative. And if you're 
grain feeding livestock when when they started that deal there was a lot the drought of the 50s had started irrigation uh development was big in our area we went from an area in the third well i guess 1910 would have been the first irrigation wells actually developed with the development of the centrifugal pump centrifugal pump and then they um uh, that was up until the 50s it was kind of viewed as fuel foolish the use of money so there were only a few farms in the area that did it then the drought of the 50s came northern mexico was getting dry all of west texas was dry um these are the people that had lived through the dust bowl uh of course you know they were just 20 or 25 years older or 30 years older at that time and uh they said you know basically we're going to try something different and pump companies came in and, and said, hey, if you'll drill a well, we'll finance it for you. And there were farmers that came in the area that went to uh, uh, individuals that were getting older, wanting to sell land. They said, hey, you finance the land. Pump companies going to finance the pump. And they were getting in and farming in this area and nothing down. So it was a very lucrative place to come to. Something okay. that would be unheard of for the youth of today. And... Um, so the wells were developed, the vegetable industry came in, uh, carrots, onions, lettuce, things like that, things that are grown in other parts of the country right now because of, of the water. And that continued to develop uh, until, you know, you know, peak water was probably the day they drilled the first well. Okay. And we've been on the decline ever since in the region wide. So about 2010, it seemed to me that it was, it was that we were on an asinine path to uh, self-extinction. Okay, what the farm looked like then? Uh, in 2010, it was probably 5% grasslands that were never touched, 95% uh, farmland uh, that at that point we had been at least 20 years of uh, move toward uh, LEPA center pivot irrigation, where we're putting that water right on the ground, right above the ground. So we're minimizing the evaporation of it. The majority of the land was irrigated at that point. There were pivots all over this place. And we were growing uh, things like white food corn, some seed milo, which would be like sorghum, sedan grasses, and things like that that people buy. They plant across the country, um, and a lot of wheat, and just basically anything anything that we could find a market for, uh, a few beans along the way, and things like that. So some cotton. I mean, we've tried a lot of different crops in my lifetime. Even in that point, we were even you know going back into third you know thirty years ago, we were still even messing with some vegetables from time to time. So, but in twenty ten, we made that move that we were, you know, this is a non-sustainable viable path. Uh, we have a lot of uh, overheads out here. And we always thought, I was raised by a, a family that um, made sure I understood the livestock industry at an early age. Okay. Even though that wasn't our primary method, that was always, that's where we're going at some point if we're here. And the reason the family's here in the first place is it was the place that they could get their foot in the door. So 
that was that was the bottom line of it. And so, it's a one it's a it's a wonderful climate if you can handle lots of wind and long dry periods. I I don't know about you, but the wind man, the wind sometimes just really really wears me down. A lot of days it'll just straight up blow me back into the house at about twenty mile an hour, twenty five. Well, the last dust storm we had around here the other day, um, we basically had peak winds up to about 68 right here. And I know uh, in the eastern Panhandle, it's a peak gust at 114, but, you know, 68 mile an hour straight gust winds, uh, to give you an idea for those people who don't live in these windy areas, uh, we had a portable water tank. I have, we have some little uh, arena traps in front of my house and it picked it up it picked it up over the tree line which these trees are probably 30 foot tall this was an empty water tank sitting in the corner of the pen steel fence right there it picked it up lifted it up over the fence up over the buildings and landed on the other side of the house laying against the fence no way it could have blown through that area it went over that area right <laughs> well we had uh it would have been i think august of 2021 i was in colorado for you know the like the first day of about a four-day vacation mm-hmm. i get a call from home it's like hey you know it stormed here last night I'm like yeah well here's pictures of the shed so i had a 30 by 80 uh flat top shed that was built I think it was built sometime in the fifties, maybe mid fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So about an 80 mile an hour straight line wind from the Northwest got up underneath the corner of that building, picked it up in the air, wadded it up through half of it across the highway, a hundred about 150 yards or so. Mm-hmm. And through the rest of it down in the corner, my corrals bent them up a little bit. I mean, nothing, it's, you know, nothing that needed to repair, but just imagine, you know, this this giant steel building get picked up by the wind and thrown across the highway. And it, it didn't go like over. It went down the highway because there were a few scratches, and then it went down, and took out some fence. But uh, so, yeah, I, it was a good day not to work in the shop. <laughs> yeah, it was a good day to not be home. Apparently, um, it, the same day that happened, there was a cottonwood tree. You know, we've got some pretty ugly big cottonwoods here too. And I don't know how old this one was, but it was pretty fair size. Um, it fell down and missed my dad's house by less than a foot. Your and father he, a lucky man. Yeah. And the corner that that tree missed, that's where his bedroom is in that house. So, yeah. I can't remember if he was home or not when that happened. He probably was. But uh, anyway, so... Uh, back to the area around Hereford, Texas. It's interesting, um, you know, that you say that they used to grow vegetables around there. You know, as, as I started uncovering some more history, it seems like that was a pretty common thing. You know, back in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and in some areas even up in still the late 70s or 80s, that you know farms were a lot more diverse out here in the high plains. You know, you would find you know guys that were trying to grow vegetables. You know, something other than just wheat, corn, beans, and cotton. And I think about Hereford, Texas, and it's always been my my understanding that the first really, really big feedlot was built down there by Hereford and somewhere around the mid-50s. 
Is that is that track? That would be that'd be pretty accurate. That was one of the the one of the two I uh, that were built, I think, nationwide historically. But the one that you're alluding to, there was a small set of pins uh, that I understand were built by the Brumley family that later than uh, not long far from where they were trading cattle. The okay, if we're going to talk the one of the most world famous cattlemen, Mr. Paul Engler from Nebraska originally was down here buying cattle from the Brumleys, the way the story goes. And he saw on this, they were loading cattle on, on a train. And at the same time, they were loading Milo grain sorghum on the train. And he goes, this is crazy. We're loading the beef and the grain on the same train to go somewhere else to feed the cattle so that they can be harvested. I think they were going to California at the time, but I'm not sure if that's correct. I believe that's what the, the way the story goes. But, um, you know, a group of investors came together uh, with uh, the help of Mr. Engler, who was who was down here buying cattle for a, another gentleman, and um, Hereford Feed Yard was built, uh, and and that was it was built in a in a location that was highly accessible to rail and things like that. Of course, the idea was not the idea that um, that we would be what we do today here, there is still a lot of cattle fed in this region. About in Deathway County, there's usually over 900,000 head fed a year. Within 30 or 40 miles of Hereford, there's approximately between Dimmit and, and Friona, Texas, the other two neighboring towns, there's usually around 1.6 million head of cattle. And what changed that also is that about 21 years ago, actually, the first uh, big dairy here on the Southern Plains uh, came in uh, into the Texas side of the equation. There had been doing some activity in New Mexico side of the state line, but it moved in. And um, so what we have is we have large numbers of confined animals and limited numbers of grazing animals um, in an ecosystem that we bring uh, because we have uh, lost our ability to produce the amount of grain it takes to feed that number of animals. We are now um, importing the grain out of Illinois, Iowa, and places like that with the help of the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad and, uh, of course, ADM, Cargill, and folks like that. So it's a very industrialized uh, agricultural system uh, that the, the the Achilles heel on it is the fact it's the same Achilles heel that the, the row crop farmers that grew vegetables have in the Achilles heel is the water table decline. And so um, we're and, 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 and that's not even uh, I will mention a can of worms that we don't have to go down but I think it has cultural significance and national uh, soil health significance. The way it was put to me many years ago, when we import corn, uh, we're in lieu importing topsoil. And water. And water, correct. Uh, grain is one of the cheapest ways to move a water resource around the country. 
and yet we're not removed we're not sending the uh manure back to where the corn was grown so we have enhanced the system we're in um the reality is we've enhanced mining of soils and movement of of nutrients uh in a very very large scale and at this juncture it hasn't killed our food production in our country but i think at some point it becomes a very questionable approach how do you how do you maintain food production moving all this all these feedstuffs around the country and not bringing it back to where that feedstuff was grown i think that becomes a where a ranch only takes a small percentage off i mean i mean truly a, a grass-based operation uh the main things that they sell if you really break down the carcass of an animal is fat and water and fat is essentially carbon hydrogen and oxygen and we're pulling carbon out of the sky hydrogen out of the sky and oxygen out of the sky so we really do not pull as many nutrients out of the earth on a grazing system as we would when we're moving things uh, in a large scale down a track. And I think, I think that's, that's something to think about, but taking a step back, um, we, uh, realizing that that was the problem we have in our area, we moved our business. Uh, we decided we, we would, uh, and it's not to talk about our business too much because to give them a context of what we're doing with. It, it, we decided to start moving some of the farmland to grassland. Anybody at Pivot Farms understands if they don't have corner systems on their pivots, that those corners are 25% of the land and they're 5% of the gross revenue, typically speaking. And so they're bad math to operate. So we started putting them in grass and we liked it so well that we started putting entire fields to grass and selling the pivots off. Like selling the actual pivot machinery? the actual machinery started moving okay. the pivots off and uh, quite frankly what we really did we uh we we sold multiples and bought we upgraded some units and sold multiples off so today we went from a farm that would have had um well over 60 pivots on it to a farm that has um in the low 20s is where we're at now we actually and there and there's and we and so we basically have taken 75 percent of our land to grass the other is pretty much a no-till system that's also the remaining what's under pivot is in route to go to grass if it's you know we're at different stages on different places because one thing we didn't do was use uh we have not made the habit of using irrigation water to start to start grasses we just say, let's plant grass. And when it rains, it's going to come up and, and we're going to let the plant succession and natural succession take care of it along with some grazing management of things like weeds and things like that, that people worry about and we call feed. Yeah. Most weeds are just good cow feed. Like exactly. Uh, pigweed, like pigweeds, one that like all the corn farmers and bean farmers up here love to yell about. Uh, that's like around 20% protein if you can get them when they're green. Cows love them. I mean, that that was, I see a lot of, I see a lot of, quote, weed management problems 
in farm fields around here that could be solved with just a few cows in there for just a few minutes because they would go eat those weeds and eat them down to dirt. I digress. Well, you remind me of a quote from the late, great Gordon Hazard when he addressed the South Dakota Grazing Lands Coalition uh, years back. He said, I've never seen a farm without weeds or something to that effect. And, and I think as long as you're going to have bare ground, you're going to have those, those annual plants trying to come in and fill the void and, and do what us that like to think in the regenerative thought process uh, uh, consider finally as good. You know, one thing we run into in our part of the world where we're, we're as dry as we are, a lot of people like to say, well, we can't use cover crops because it's too dry here. And there is a little bit of truth to that. You can't get them all. You can't always get them up when you want to because you're bringing in uh, species that aren't used to a subtenant rainfall. You know, say if you're doing it a dry year, right? But it's amazing. You can get a half inch rain and get a beautiful stand of weeds. And and so the direction we went on, we are we are the uh, type that we think our most sustainable plants are. Uh, focused around the native species that were here before we came, which is going back to blue grama and buffalo grass and and some other grasses such as green sprangle top, which actually is a repositioned grass, which was south of us more um, at one point, but it works really well up in here. Uh, those kinds of grasses, and, and as, as we've seen it, we've seen a lot of other different kinds of grasses show <coughs> show up in our system i mean it's just it's a it's a neat thing to watch but it's a very patient thing to watch i gotta ask are you planting any old world blue stems king ranch spar ww spar anything like that well let me tell you the story there because okay when i was a child we farmed uh okay my father actually started buying land 69 and i was born in 1970 and um over the years we bought farms that people would put that on so we have a corner here or a corner there of those old world blue stems remaining. And um, we have not added any of those old world blue stems in, in since probably 1981. So when I was 11 years old, would have been the last time anyone even thought about adding an old world blue stem right here. Even though there are areas that are, that are more prevalent uh, I think they're a little harder to manage. I think that uh, they have, in our environment, there are periods that they're pretty useful for feed production. Um, but carrying cattle through the winter without supplement, uh, I think the natives have it beat 10 to 1 all the time. And so that's the way we look at it from a year round. Because what we do, and we're, and we're a little odd here, we're not... We're not master grazers yet. We we graze the cattle. We're going down this path. Uh, we basically move cattle every three to seven days because that's what's easy for us. Uh, we have not put up permanent fences on the property, so we do it all uh, with with electric hot, uh, portable wire um, because that's what we had. And even though uh, to tell the truth on that we have enough fencing material in the barn to build a multi-strand electric fence on the property we just hadn't done it yet 
because we hadn't quite figured out how we want to lay. Even though our farm is very easy to lay out, we have a water tank in the middle of every section and we base, graze basically 80s and 160s most of the time. So we, we graze um, at this point where our waters are, are, are probably a little too far from the far corner, but it's manageable. So we're a half mile from any side. So we're a little over a half mile to the furthest corner. And we graze them a quarter section at a time. And um, so we move, we're, we move cattle uh, once or twice a week, depending on what we're on. When what's growing fast, we move a little faster. And when it's this time of year, we're grazing pretty slow because we don't know when our next rain is. And, and we're pretty simple. We count quarter sections of, of feed of grass and weeds ahead of us and say, okay, this is how many weeks worth of feed we've got till we have to, till we hit this drought management point that we have to destock X percentage. So that's how we look at it. We look at it as a, as a, as an inventory management deal as much as anything, um, which is truly the way we manage it, you know? So. Okay. I help, help me kind of paint a picture here. When you talk about that, the farm used to have like 60 odd pivots. I'm thinking everything's on a section line. Everything's on a section line broken up into quarters and there's roads. Everywhere. That's exactly correct. Okay. So you might have, you know, how many of your acres are continuous? All of them. All of them. Okay. So you're, even though they're all continuous, you still have to deal with like probably a lot of county roads. Yes. We still deal with county roads and we're known. Yes. And uh, we have a, we have a state highway running through us also that we get to deal with and, and people on those lines. Yeah. I've got we have a lot of infrastructure more. There's more road infrastructure than we need for our future in reality, but it makes checking livestock and moving things around very, very fast. And most of that you don't have to maintain. Yeah, that's correct. But sometimes they need help. <laughs> Can't disagree. County government sometimes need help in certain spots can't disagree um i what, let's talk about the grasses that you know we kind of went off on the old world blue stem tangent and what's I, your thoughts on them i think old world blue stem's a horrible grass thank you like <laughs> <laughs> uh my dad went kind of my dad kind of went on a crusade against it several years ago and I finally convinced him to quit spraying it about four years ago. Because after years of spraying, like we, we, we sprayed one test patch that we marked out. We sprayed it to bare soil three years in a row. And then let it go. Guess what? Guess what's there now? Old world blue. Stem. blue stem. I mean, it, anywhere where we sprayed it, it's still there. So it... It didn't work. We spent money, we spent time, we put toxic chemicals on the soil, and it didn't work. And dad was like, well, the cows won't eat it. Cows won't eat it. Cows won't eat it. Well, guess what? I found a bunch of cows that will eat it. So I've got cows that'll eat it. I mean, you know, September, October when it's nice, but the rest of the year, they've kind of left it alone. You throw enough protein to them, you know, they'll, they'll go after it. Um, and we talked earlier that you know, we're in a very similar rainfall environment, you know, that 18 to 22 inches, which is really 
you know, 30 to 36. I think the lowest I've ever had is probably something like um, 10 or 11. But, you know, we've had years that's, you know, just on top of 40. We get about the same summer as you do. We just have about three weeks less of it. And here, you know, in addition to all the grasses you listed, you know, the blue grama, the hairy grama, um, side oats grama, uh, I think you said buffalo sure, grass sure. too. And there's yeah, probably, we have a lot of side oats and buffalo, yeah. There's probably another one in there you mentioned and I forgot. The uh, green sprinkle top, yeah. Well, I don't have that. But cool one. I do have little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, and I'm starting to get switchgrass. Which, you know, the Indian grass and the big blue stem can be just a tremendous amount of volume per acre. I mean, they're, they're patches that that would be close to 6,000 pounds of forage per acre, you know, if you clipped at ground level and weighed. I mean, six, seven foot tall grass, just, it's awesome. Getting them to use that in the wintertime is kind of a challenge. Like you got to throw a lot of protein to them. So that's a lot of what I'm, what I'm working off of is, is the warm season grasses, the big five warm season grasses, you know, mm -hmm. side oats, big blue, little blue, Indian and switch. Like that's what I like to see. And that's kind of like what I managed for. Do you guys, uh, do you have a lot of tall grasses down there or is that just called corn in your neighborhood? No, well, corn is the predominant tall grass, but it's it's, the, it's going away in lieu of uh, in lieu of forage sorghums, <laughs> but not on not necessarily so much on us. Uh, we actually see some tall grasses. I'll, I'll tell you, there's historical. Uh, my great uncle, who when he came here, he talked about uh, the the story. I never knew the man because he died a few years before I was born, but he talked about when he first came that there were times that the native grasses were taller than the cattle. And that was a pretty common sight that the cattle, you would lose your cattle in the grass because the grass was really strong. And uh, we have a, uh, we have a, uh, have a former mayor here who's passed away, who passed away uh, uh, a few years ago during the, during this pandemic period. And his father had ridden horseback through here, moving horses across here before there were any fences. And that family was out of, out of Southern Kansas around, around the area of Pratt. And he said that area had amazing grass through here. Hold up the area South of Pratt. That's, that's where I am. Well, around Pratt. Yeah. The, our former mayor was a man by the name of Bob Josserin, who was the former NCBA president. And they are actually his son. One of his sons is actually is the current owner of the initial Hereford feed yard. Okay. So they came here, I believe they came here in the seven, in after the 73, 74 cattle wreck is when they kind of really got their feet on the ground here. But amazing man did great things for our community. Um, and uh, of course, and, and what's interesting about that gentleman is he, he of course, did really well feeding cattle. And at one time was a top five cattle feeder. And later in his life, him and his son, John, he, they really were moving toward uh, cows on grass, grass-based systems. And they still had these feeding facilities, but they were moving away from that. And I think they could see the future just like we could see the future that it, those there's places for those systems but they don't hold the same magnitude that they once did, you know, looking out 40 or 50 years down the road from now. 
because the way if we look about where we're at right now the most water efficient plants other than a pigweed pigweed pretty darn water efficient as far as pounds of tonnage produced per inch of water um hence why its ability to outgrow most crops it ever shows up in uh the next most obvious thing uh besides those those annual weeds that come in and fill the soil i mean cover the soil and put the band-aid on buy us some time to to get the grasses reestablished and things like that um it would be our would be our native species that that once covered this great savanna and i think what we'll see going forward over time we see a little bit of it already we we start seeing more tall grasses um showing up in places over time and one thing that we did see we did have i will tell you this on your old world blue stems the most successful moment we had on a place that we have that has it was a, it was a little it was a oh there's probably two corners of pivot so between 14 and 20 acres of old world blue stem that was put in a long long time ago um during the drought of 2011 and 12 here, we were, which actually started in July of 2010 in our neighborhood. Uh, 11 was worse further south, not as bad further north, and then got worse further north. And we improved somewhat in 2012 further south. Um, was that true? We actually saw old blue stem patches go away because of in 2011 we had three inches of rainfall and in and on the end of may of 2013 when we actually got our first good rain the first thing we had where that old world blue stem was was this wonderful uh stand of blue grama waiting in the wings to come in yes it was and the only thing, the only source of blue grama seed was across the road of a piece of ground around a playa lake that had never been interrupted. And so there is hope on these old world blue stems that they're not totally adapted to our region. Uh, there, are, there is some hope that they're not going to take it over. I, I know we've seen that. I know that's been a big concern in our, amongst um, native grass owners with CRP nearby. That was put in, in the early 80s in CRP because there was a lot of old world blue stems put in in that period because of CRP. Yeah, I can and, that. And so um, I'm just fortunate that my, our family wasn't big participants in the CRP program at that time. Um, and some of all of our neighbors weren't either. So that helped us a lot. Uh, but um, we've had a lot you know we, we we're like a lot of rural areas we've had a lot of attrition in, in rural agriculture not of a lot of consolidation amongst farms um a lot of this get bigger get out which is which is a economic fallacy um for a lot of people because you can you know you make money in agriculture on a small scale you make money on agriculture on a large scale if you do it well you're going to do well on either scale and if you do it poorly you'll lose money on either scale and um but looking at it where where we're at today what we learned through this process i guess we're 13 years into this experiment and that's what it is 
It's a big experiment, Brian. Everything's exper experimental. Everything's experimental. And so our experiment here is to, was to see, can we survive making it go to taking an irrigated farm back to predominantly dryland grass-based production? Because that's where we thought we were going. And I've got two little boys that are now 15 years old. So they were little when we started this experiment, three years old. And it seemed to me that the best thing we could do was for me to take the blunt of the bro, the blunt of the blow of changing. So if they decided they liked it, that they didn't have to. Okay. And uh, what we did, um, what, what we've learned, I mean, this is the coolest part about what we've learned. It, as we reduced our pumping and we reduced our pivots and we more grass we put in, we started seeing recovery of our oglala. Can you explain that? Yes. So, so here was the deal. It's pretty well documented in the areas of the oglala that there are areas that recharge. They recharge at a rate of of, at variable rates. I mean, from, you know, the textbooks here will say, or the water districts here will say 0.54 to 0.8 inches of water per year. And in our world, it looks like it's more like 1.8 inches. So nearly 10% of our annual rainfall. So it's changed our goal quite a bit on our farm. Our goal is to keep 90% of the water on the land to grow grass or grow whatever crop we're growing. We still do grow some wheat. Believe it or not, we still grow wheat. Um, but, um, and I, I like it because you can cut it and graze it either way. I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm, look, I mean, if I had a couple thousand acres and, and all the stuff, you know, the tractors, drills that I needed, I'd probably be doing that too, but that's, that's not ever been in any part of my context. So I'm not gonna go spend money to do that. I mean, wheat's just a cool season grass and yes. If you have a little bit of moisture, it's pretty daggum dependable. Well, and, and what we've learned is if you can, if you can, if you can grow, you know, the nice thing about wheat is you're growing it during a, it's on the ground, it's in the ground a long time and B um, you're growing it during your, mostly during your lower evapotranspiration period. So yeah, it's not as water efficient for bushels as corn. That's the whole hallmark of corn. Corn is extremely efficient from a bushel per inch of water perspective, but it takes a lot of water to get the base, to get the first bushel on corn. And so a lot of farmers have grown corn because A, it's easy, and B, it's easy, and C, it's easy. And, and we've got a lot of technology and a lot of advertising and, and a lot of demand or thought up demand or created demand for the product. So... It's an easy to sell. It's an easy product to sell. Um, but going away from that, if you get rid of your, if, if you re, to give me a con, here's a context for you. You're talking about tractors. Okay, we were, when we started this project in 2010, we were running five high horsepower tractors. Okay, and you know, handful of little ones for you know. Uh, working on fences, putting out feed, fixing wells, things like that, okay? Today, we have one high horsepower tractor. Okay. We went from multiple drivers 
to one operate one person working full time on the farm. Besides, because I'm a practicing veterinarian, I spend part of my day on the farm, part of my day at my, at my practice or on somebody's place helping them. And uh, we'll, we'll get back to your vet practice later. Oh, that's going to be dicey. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's amazing when you change when you go through that change of reducing of reducing irrigation. You got to get a cover cut, reduce costs. And when you reduce costs, you reduce labor, reduce overheads, you reduce dependence upon uh, high tech agriculture. Even though we incorporate the you know you know we were very early adopters in the steering technology and all of that stuff. I mean that was that was a no brainer in our mind because it was a labor savings device that allowed me to run in the middle of the night without without running over something I didn't want to run over. <laughs> <laughs> and because we have a lot of dust, you, if you were doing tillage, which we did do at that time, um, you couldn't see. Tractors surrounded by dust. I have some distant cousins that are that are just north of me, about 15 miles in. They haven't called in a few years. I wonder why. Uh, probably because their kids are getting old enough to help. But you know, I used to go up and help them, help them cut wheat, help them work ground, help them plant wheat, help them do corn, help them do beans. And, um, yeah, I've been there at, uh, you know, after dark in a field, completely surrounded with dust, had no idea where I was, just made sure the GPS was doing its thing and it makes life easy. And you didn't know what direction you were going. Always. Yes. It can get a little disoriented too in the morning. Yeah. But with the, as long as you stayed on your line, you were good. Yep. Yep. As long as you stay on that line and it's inside the boundaries of the big box, you're good. Just keep it rolling. And that, and that that it was the life we've lived, and it's still lived by a lot of people here in the plains. And um, so kids these days, just watch YouTube and TikTok while they're farming. That's I know, true. I know a guy that plays Farm Simulator while he's farming on GPS. He'll sit there and play Farm Simulator so he can farm while he's farming. That's pretty. That's pretty interesting. That's a pretty serious farm addict. Yeah. That is pretty serious addiction problem, you know, but I guess if you, if, you know, if you thought about, it, you know, you're, you can do your banking and everything else, uh, with your cell phone anymore and have been for quite a while. Um, I guess it's, it's cheaper for him to do, to, to play farm simulator than it is for him to do online gambling. Probably. <laughs> Unless he's good at it. <laughs> I don't know anybody that really is. I good at gambling, not at Farm Simulator. <laughs> well, they have you bat. The math is working against you, and if you can beat their math, then good for you. That you're a better mathematician than they are. But, no, I understand the math. That's why I don't go gamble. Seven percent take, depending on what the game is. <laughs> yeah, and over the long term, then they're going to get theirs. Yeah, I've just I've never worried about that. I've never I've never been a big gambler. It's the way we're supposed, you know, that, that 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 getting a percentage every time we do a deal is the way we're supposed to try to do it here in the cattle business. Well, I or guess the sheep business a, or whatever else. I've never been a gambler in the sense of you know casinos or cards, but you know there's enough gamble every day in the cattle market. You know, just waking up and going to work and hoping we get some rain, and grow some grass. You know, there's lots of gambles that you know we take as you know in farming and ranching every year that we don't always necessarily see as a gamble. Well, it's like that paradigm right now. 
okay, it's dry. Do you listen to the the grazing guru of Jim Garrish and destock? Or do you maintain an inventory knowing just so you have a foothold to stay in the game once it does rain? You know, I, <laughs> that's, been the, that's been the question for, gosh, I don't know, six, seven months. You know, like like you talked about, you know, the, the drought 10 years ago. You know, you guys started to feel it in 2010. I felt it in 2010, Okay. I destocked a little bit in 2010, which means I had a destock less in 2011. When 2012 came and it was super dry, it was just another incremental destock. It wasn't, you know, a huge, a huge drop. You see it coming, you start planning early. And this one, like we're we've been in this drought for 30 months already. And it, it was it was last August, I put some social media out about like, if you don't have enough forage to get your animals back to green grass next spring, you need to figure that plan out exactly. now and not wait till December, January, or February when you run out and hay is $300 on the open market, you better have a plan now to feed those animals. Yeah, I caught a lot of heat, caught a lot of hate. I don't care. I can take it. I have fairly thick skin. When it does get to me, I just log off and don't log back in for a couple weeks. And, you know, everything dies down and it'll be fine again. But, you know, it, it seems like guys don't, it, they're not in tune with the larger weather climate picture and patterns and what's going on with them. And, you know, to some extent, when you're feeding your cattle a crop that you're growing under irrigation in a feedlot, well, why do you care how much it rains? You just go turn on the irrigation, make another lap and irrigate the corn a little bit more. But for guys like you and I, you know, there's a big difference in getting 12 inches of rain versus 20 inches of rain. And also there's also something to be said about the timing of that rain. Like a lot of rain during the, during the dormant season, might not do a whole lot of good. It's not going to grow a lot of grass. Will it put moisture in the profile? Sure. Will it recharge aquifer in your case? Probably. But is it going to grow a lot of spring grass? Not really. Like we need rain right now to really get our spring grass growing and to get our summer grass started. So, and, you know, so we're talking about irrigation and that's, you know, that's kind of your wheelhouse, right? And we talk about feeding corn and, you know, the, 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 that's why all the feedlots, that's why the big feedlots are in the Texas Panhandle and they're building a bunch of big dairies there now because they think they can, they're going to be able to continue to grow, quote, cheap feed with water, with irrigation water. And from everything to understand, I mean, Kansas, we're not any different. There's places in Kansas that are the same situation that Texas Panhandle, West Texas is in. With irrigation water, the wells keep dropping. The wells keep dropping, and occasionally, you know, some go dry. Um, you know, and it's a deal all the way to eastern Colorado. What do we do when these irrigation wells start running dry? Nobody's answering that question. It's just pump, 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 pump. And to me, it's just, it's madness that we're going to take water 
from several hundred feet down that's been there for tens of thousands of years. And we're going to pump that using energy that's millions of years old to spray on corn, to haul to an animal that's standing in a feedlot. It, it doesn't make sense. Somewhere along the lines, we're going to realize that there's a lot of efficiencies and not, not efficiencies. What's the op? There's a lot of inefficiencies in that system that we're just blind to. I, I, I heard a deal the other day that was kind of interesting. And it said that 76% of the people on earth that live in extreme poverty uh live in a natural resource deprived area okay okay so are we not creating natural resource deprived areas when we pump the water tables dry and are we not subject are we not creating a real problem for society in the plains if we don't more judiciously manage or think about water because in texas i mean can i give you a quick brief overview of it okay texas you own the land you own the water underneath it as long as you don't you view it wastefully by the state you're going to maintain that right to own that water until some or unless someone comes along buys the land or buys the water right and you know, each state along the Great Plains is a little bit different, but probably my favorite one, the way I understand it, is, you know, um, of course, Nebraska's got the sand hills, and they've got the recharge of sand hills, but there's spots there they have along the plat er, er, that they've got water problems or having adequate supplies. Further east you get in that state, the better off they are, but you get into South Dakota, and the rule that I understood that they had was you can't take more than it recharges. And I think the reality of the planes is we're going to have to get back to, you can't take more than your, than it recharges. And, and you need to do it before we get down to the level of just recharge only because your well capacities are going to be gone. If you do it way before then you maintain higher well capacities. So that means if you do have to irrigate a crop or, get water quickly to an area uh say you need a high flow uh pump going to water your cattle on pasture because you're running brian alexander's running thousand cows per per grazing group and and you know they drink a lot of water really fast you know we lose that ability if we if we get down to three gallon a minute wells yeah you know, if you have 100 or 200 gallon minute wells or 500 gallon minute wells, then watering livestock is a no brainer, easy situation. And so we're actually making it less livable from even a, a grassland, dryland perspective by pumping, by thinking it's okay to pump it down to oblivion. And, and the other part about the deal, uh, if we produce, the reality is the biggest uh, fallacy in American agriculture is that we, quote, feed the world. And we need to feed our communities first. And if we feed our communities, then we've done 
our job as agriculturists in a community. And so that being said, we are um, going to have to continue to move forward thinking about how we get away from that, that the lie, because we haven't solved anything if we don't teach other people to feed themselves. All we're doing is displacing the problem and making them dependent on us. And when we can't supply them in the future and we've made them dependent on us, our friend becomes our enemy. <laughs> and we, you know, um, so I think we need to think in more terms of a, how do you balance food production needs with food production demands and don't grow food for the sake of just growing extra food. So that say so that we can keep people employed in the food sector. Good points. Good points. So a um, couple things. I think it's something it's it's close to 80%, maybe a little more. Close to 80% of the world's food is grown by small subsistence farmers. Mm -hmm. So you're right. And I've been saying it for a long time. We don't feed the world. Like, let, let's, like, that narrative sucks. I don't even like that term anymore. I don't, it, it, yeah, there's starving pygmies in New Guinea. Great. That sucks. There's a lot of starving children in Chicago, in Kansas City, in Dallas. I mean, there's, there's huge homelessness problems. Why are we worried about feeding the world when we can't even take care of our communities? Granted, big cities, they kind of come with their own sets of problems. But... I also want to jump back um, to the comment you made about 76% of people globally live in poverty or in a natural resource poor environment. I would argue that that includes us. That if you you're probably are, right, that if you're not on the Pacific coast and you're west of the 98th meridian, you're in a natural resource poor environment that experiences that can have three to 40 inches of rain. And I think that's the reality from the front range of the Rocky Mountains to the 98th Meridian. And the reason it's habitable here for us is because we have tapped into these underground water sources and we have the energy and we have the industrialization and the machinery to be able to pump that water out and use it. And that circles back to like a responsibility thing. Like, I, I really appreciate your philosophy and what you're saying that, you know, some of your wells are recharging or, you know, they've at least stopped dropping and they're, they're starting to recharge. The question I have, you, you talked a little bit about uh, Texas water rights, and it's very similar to what, what they're in Kansas, but there's no such thing as like a, as a separate water right from the land here. And I, I get the sense that there might be, you know, that might be a thing in Texas. If it's not, that that's cool. But what I'm asking is what, like, you can drill a well down the Ogallala on your property. Is there any kind of limit on how much water you can pump out of that? Well, yes. Okay, here's how it works. In, uh, in uh, we're very lucky that we were, okay, the community I'm from was the first community or was one of the first communities to get involved in starting water districts, okay? The good, the bad, the ugly that go with them. The way they chose to manage them in our area, and they still manage them the, the, this way today, is by well spacing. So, Brian, if you and I are neighbors, and I permit to go get a well, you can't get mad at me and drill a well right across it from it. They're going to make you go back so many feet. 
you know, and it's all depend on the capacity that you're asking out of that well. The truth of it today is the true limits are the limits of the earth's ability to supply the water that you, that go to that hole. We have way better pumping technology than we have the ability to pull all the water out of the earth at one given time. So depending upon what the substrate is, whether it's sand or sand and clay or rock, uh, determines how fast it comes out of there as much as anything, along with actual amount of saturated thickness. And one thing people don't understand, and we see this a lot with people, uh, we have a net migration into these urban areas. I mean, you know, in the Great Plains to the bigger cities in the, in the Great Plains that sit, in the, that sit uh, where there's plains on both sides of it, it's not on the edge of the plains, would be Amarillo, Amarillo, Texas, and Lubbock, Texas. And both those towns are seeing quite a lot of growth and the surrounding communities are seeing quite a lot of growth. And people are coming here from other parts of the United States to live because they like sunshine. And they like low land prices compared to where they may have been. And they hear, oh, I'm buying a place that has 50 feet of water underneath it. No, it's 50 feet of saturated thickness. And Kansas data, from what I've read, they like 17%, probably. In Texas, we like to say 15%. Well, so we're going to use 15%. What's 15% of 50? It's seven and a half feet. So you so have seven, like and a half pond feet of, seven and a half feet deep. Yeah. Okay. And, and so from the, from the corn farmer perspective, and I'm not bashing corn. Corn's just a crop. You know, cattle are cattle, corn's corn. I mean, plants are plants. They all have their place. They all can be managed well or managed poorly. And, um, but if you're using a crop that uses two feet of water per year, you're four crops away from being dry if you didn't have any recharge. That's not a long-term business plan, Brian. I agree. And so uh, people are building houses in places that they don't necessarily understand what they're getting into because they're not buying enough gallons to meet their long-term needs. And people are financing them. So that here's, you know, through banks and things like that. Well, if truly banks are a collection of other people's money and a collection of printed money by clicking a, a mouse today or, or a touchscreen or whatever to say, we're making this loan to this person to buy this $500,000 house. What happens if those houses don't have any water? Are they gonna walk away from those houses? Are they gonna put up storage tanks? Are they gonna put rainwater collection systems? What happens? And what about if you happen to own a ranch and you need to borrow some money and of course, when what people don't understand is, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use you for the fun of it. Go ahead. Brian Alexander owns a ranch that uh, that he makes a living on, and uh, uh, say he may, say he's a really good rancher, and he gets a five percent net in, net return on his asset, and. But he had to go borrow some money because of the drought to, to buy some extra feed. 
And the bank said, okay, you're signing a note for this collateral on this deal and you're going to pay it no matter what. And wow, you have a nice net worth at the bottom. Well, the banker just kind of makes sure that it's cross collateralized with the paid for ranch. And then they get to show that as an asset on their book. <laughs> Even though you bought a, you borrowed $100,000 for feed. Well, what happens? You get five or six more of these dry periods and that 100,000 turns into a million. And at the same time, these people that built these houses are throwing the keys back at the bank. Well, it puts us all in a jam if, if the banks can't, if we get into a position where the banks can't function properly because of poor developing, poor thinking, poor education about where we really are. You know, um, we that already ahead. almost happened in like 2008. And I remember that. And I thought the whole world economic system was just going to, was going to implode and cease to function. And, um, if the government hadn't stepped in, it probably would have done that. We would have gone to an underground system. Yeah. So, and, and like, it, yeah, there's a lot of systemic problems, like with with water and lending and banks and whatnot. Um, I I just see the government stepping in and you know propping things up. But if there's not Bailing us all water, out of our sins, huh? <laughs> but if the water's not there, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the water's not there. You know, we've seen over the last two years of COVID, a lot of people leaving California. Some people leave in the East Coasts, blue states. A lot of them went to Texas. I'm not going to say a, a whole lot of them came to this part of Kansas, maybe up towards, you know, the east side, northeast side of the state where there's already too many people. I, you know, I, I mentioned I had some friends uh, that had a place in northeast Colorado earlier. And when we met them, that was kind of, that was, that was kind of a concern. Like they, they mentioned that they had some water issues and we're like, well, you know, maybe you ought to get that well tested. Maybe see, you know, maybe make sure that if you want to continue to do this business here and make a life for yourselves here, that you're going to have water to run an agricultural business. Came back a couple months later, they couldn't get any confidence in their water supply in that well, which ultimately led to them getting out of that property. Who bought it? Don't know. What are they doing with it? doesn't really matter you know there's a, like there's a threshold of water that's required you know to keep livestock especially in some of the artificial systems that we have and you can do a lot of that with rainwater we don't drink rainwater in general i mean if we do it's you know out of a lake has to be filtered but we we have to we have to have infrastructure for our water we have to be able to pump it we have to be able to filter it and there has to be enough of it and areas like you know the front range mountains in colorado colorado springs denver denver's running out of water colorado springs doesn't quite have enough um i saw something come across my news feed the other day um i think it's like saint george utah or salt lake city or somewhere up in that area one of the fastest growing urban areas in the united states they already don't have enough water for the people that are there, but they're like, oh yeah, come on, move here. It's a great place to live. Uh, yeah, what happens when we run out of water? Or what happens when there's just slightly not enough? And 
we might get a well, I was up until about a month ago, I said we might get a taste of that in the desert southwest with the Colorado River kind of not having enough moisture in it, not having enough moisture in a Colorado River drainage to refill Mead and Powell and be able to provide irrigation water out of that system. Like, you know, we can talk, we talk about the Ogallala Aquifer and overuse of that, like over allocation of Colorado River water is like, that's a whole other can of worms. Mm-hmm. And I, I go back to that, you know, the, the, the area of quote, poor natural resources. To me, you know, that's rainfall. It's the Mountain West and it's the Plains. And the reason I, you know, things are going to have to change. The cost of everything is going to go up. The technology, you know, it's going to become harder and harder to pump the water out, to find it, to keep it clean. Especially the more people we get, and it's going to become a scarcer resource. And I think about what what the area looked like before Europeans came. You know, there were Indian, there were Native Americans that lived all the way on the West Coast. There were Native Americans that that, that had cities and civilizations on the 98th meridian and east. Mm-hmm. The plains and the mountains. I mean, okay, yeah, there's uh, like the Navajo and the, the Hopi tribes. They had cities. Northern mountains, northern Rocky Mountains, nothing. The plains, I mean, I think you and I both know that the Comanches wouldn't tolerate any crap, and they didn't have any towns. So the Comanche were nomadic people. The history of the plains has been that of nomadic peoples, of nomadic animals. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, are we, re- if we're not really meant to live in these areas because they are deficient in natural resources and in rainfall, should we maybe be looking at more of a nomadic lifestyle or, or what does that say about, what does that say to you about, you know, our future here on the plains? Well, first of all, I think, I, Brian, I think that, um, we have a lot to learn from the Mongolians. Okay. And the the ability to move around and regain that. I think um, if the experiment of great cities on the plains uh, doesn't work, which the odds are in favor that they will work because we're going to spend an enormous amount of natural resource dollars and new technology to try to keep them alive. But if we're really thinking about how would it be if there were many, many fewer people on the plains, then you end up back to a hunter-gatherer grass-based society of where, you know, maybe we, maybe because of governments and they're wanting to, to harvest taxes, that uh, maybe we need grass in three or four places in the plains instead of one spot like a sitting duck waiting for the drought to come. So that changes the way we move our animals. Um, There's certainly nothing wrong with the idea of 
being further north in the summer and further south in the winter. And I mean, there's something comforting for everyone that gets to experience that. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just like being, if you're in the extreme Northern Plains, pushing it up into Canada, those guys, some of those guys have had to feed a lot of feed this winter because of the mass snow they've had. They don't get that every year, but the year it comes, they either have to put wheels under the animals or they have to feed them. And it's, I, I think, I think if we really could find systems that are much more flexible, I think that buys us a lot of longevity in the planes. I mean, I think there will, I think there will be people who choose to be more nomadic if that's what it takes, even if we're, we're, maybe you have a place and maybe you have so many, so many acres in Texas, so many acres in Kansas, so many acres in Nebraska, so many acres in South Dakota on up into Wyoming or Montana or wherever it is on, uh, on the east side of the Rockies. Um, I think that's probably a model that has merit because the truth of it is, if we look at weather patterns, as the easterlies, which are on the equator and the, and the poles, and when, um, when they speed up, the westerlies slow down. And when the when the west when when they slow down, the westerly speed up. If I'm remembering this right, and uh, it seems to me that most of the time, when North Dakota, South Dakota are in extreme drought, we're still tolerable. And usually, when we're in extreme drought here on the Southern Plains, North Dakota, South Dakota is coming out of it, and they're doing better. We kind of flip flop back and forth. And you talk about how it was before modern civilization. Well, the, the animals migrated to the green grass. The people and, 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 and those of us humans that were getting to be the predators at the time, chasing them to try to catch one of them, uh, we migrated with them. And, and I think there's, it's a beautiful system. And I don't know, I don't think we'll go back to that totally, but I think uh, mimicry, geographic mimicry, has a place probably you know of mimicking the idea that and maybe you don't have to own it maybe you have a maybe through it maybe it's through information sharing of who's got extra grass and 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 quit thinking of terms of a static livestock population maybe i'm making that mistake on our properties that maybe we're thinking too much in terms of a static livestock population and um maybe a, a more fluid model is, is more appropriate, you know, from a, from a grazing perspective, it certainly is. I mean, right now we're still in great shape feed wise for another till the end of the summer. If we don't get a rain till the end of the summer, that's when I really start getting in big trouble. But uh, because we're, we've got enough Brown ahead of us to keep us going. <laughs> yeah, but I know how that feels like <laughs> I have Brown grass till July 15th ish. And, um, yeah, that's when I'm out of grass. If it doesn't rain anymore, that's when the trucks come, right? That's we can, we can, we can sell so many to friends to slaughter and the rest, they have to go somewhere else. It's not written in stone on the calendar, but it's definitely penciled in. And I've got my eye on that date is like, that's the day we run out of grass. You got your road closure signs so you can graze the bar ditches for about two more weeks. 
Oh, man, I wish I did. I gotta get <laughs> some made real quick. The old timers used to call that the long pasture. <laughs> We're gonna hurt them down because we can't afford diesel for the truck. <laughs> I, you say that, and I re- like it. Kind of remember, like, makes me half remember a story somebody used to, you know, told me about. You know, a guy was like, "Well, add a grass on the ranch. Got to take him to town." Might as well graze the whole way there. And he like drove his cattle 20 odd miles to town down the ditches. And he stayed with them the whole time, slept with them out there and everything like a two day trip to get him to town, got him to town, sold him at the barn, turned around and rode home. He probably had less strength than everybody else. Hell, he probably had gain on the way there. Well, that's the goal. <laughs> it, it, it blows my mind that, you know, on the cattle drives, you know, the, the loving goodnight trail and all the cattle drive trails, those guys would take cows from farther south than you are, drive them past where I'm at, and they'd gain two pounds a day the whole trip. Mm-hmm. Like, and now we've got to have these modern genetics that'll do two pounds a day on corn in a feedlot, and that's what they're going to do. And like, we're calling that progress, right? Anyway, uh, I, well, I think your modern genetics that a lot of people lose to. I think there's two things going on in the cattle deal that people. I think I think that people got are are getting caught, not paying attention to frame size and body type. And you know, there's a value to there's a value to smaller frames, and and we you know I remember. Um, uh, a friend of ours actually when the Kianinas when I was a child he bought the grand champion bull at the Denver at the National Western and it was a Kianina by the name of Apollo okay and he was a giant ox and he would have been the Mack truck of wagon trains had had you had 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 you had it when people were crossing the country, he would have been terrific at pulling a wagon across America. I don't know what his eating experience would have been. <laughs> Just cook it a little lower and a little slower, and you know it'll be all right. We'll get that carne es carne, huh? Yeah, yeah. But uh, if we think about today, you know this trend toward. Uh, smaller frame, more moderate cattle. I think. I think as we go forward, I think whether whatever genetic tools that people are, whether they're testing them survival the fittest on their property or they're looking at other things, I think moderation is going to be the answer for a lot of people. And whether and and land race cattle, just like land race sheep and things like that, they have a place. Land race plant genetics have a place. And that's probably the big advantage of these little sustainable farmers we talk about on a small shareholder deal. When you say land race, cattle, land race, sheep, what do you, I'm not familiar with that term. I'm talking, okay, they are the products. Okay, so Brian, if you have your cow herd and you've maintained your cow herd for eons of time in your neighborhood and you didn't introduce a lot of outside stuff and you just keep selecting the best of the best that were adapted to your environment, you end up with your own land race of animal not land race like pigs but a true land race it's truly 
developed on that land and the and the genetics that survived have learned to match that and there is a huge advantage to developing our own land races of animals and utilizing and thinking about where our holes are in our problems and only looking at any exterior genetic introduction uh, for the purpose of, oh my gosh, I have a problem. Who can I go to that might have something that I can bring in here to help fix this problem? And other than that, let them be, let them be. And just keep moving forward, trying to improve them slowly through themselves. Um, and, and I am not one to talk because I haven't fully experimented long enough thinking through it, but I know on, on plants, um, you know, plants can get pretty adapted to an area. If you just keep selecting the best seeds every time. And, and I think that if we're going to survive economically in, in places like the plains, I think we need to be looking at those things that cut costs. You know, the old Burke Tiger type of deal of uh, minimizing the overheads. Well, a $400 bag of corn seed that has all the traits, yes, it may produce more, but it's going to take a lot more corn to pay for that bag. And maybe developing land race plants uh, has some merit. You know, uh, it may be building land race hybrids of our own where this land race is, we have, I have two lines of land races and they're a little different. And maybe my optimum goal is my F1 that I'm going to crossbreed the two. So I have, maybe I have a big group of the one of my maternal and I got a 10 or 20 of these tough suckers that survive that give me a little bit more growth that I throw on my cows when I need it, when it's green, <laughs> I keep their sons and I throw them out there for, and when it gets dry again, I, I take a knife to every one of them again. You know, I mean, maybe there's ways we need to think about it because if we if we use all resources up to feed everyone, and we have to realize agriculture is an extractive industry, um, that we won't feed it, we won't we will fail at our job if we're not careful. Um, now I'm not that negative. I really deep down think that the opportunities are huge to think about ways of cutting costs, thinking about things we can do to fit our environment better, thinking about chart about irrigating within a, a balance of what our rainfall is. So we have good well capacities that, so we're not just gutting it. Um, and I think that most people fail to realize that on the plains, that the majority of our culture is rain fed, not irrigated. And those families that have been doing rain fed agriculture eat just as well as everyone else. Probably they really better have. at night because the bank isn't, the, the bank note isn't as big. Mm -hmm. I know, I know just, just some of the farmers that I know around here and you know them talking about their fuel bills for irrigation engine just staggers me and then i hear about how much water they've pumped you know and, and you know i i don't i don't know any of the numbers off the top of my head it, with any kind of accuracy to be able to talk about but it's it seems like an awful awful lot of fuel and 
Seems like an awful lot of fuel. And I, I, I kind of circle back to the comment I made earlier. You know, we're going to use energy that's millions of years old to pump water that's thousands of years old to grow corn that we can ship to make ethanol or, you know, grow a cow or to an ethanol plant where we can make a fuel that's less energy dense and not shelf stable. Um, the, the the cost, you know, you start thinking of cost. I will tell you the number. The, you think about how cheap fossil energy still is in our country. Yeah. And to give you an idea, down here, a lot of people will use the number of, say, just a, a random number of $15 to pump an acre inch. An acre inch is 27,154 gallons. Okay. Now, here's a different way of looking at it the value of a gallon of water for civilization, not for food production is probably one to two cents per gallon. So you think about that. So it's worth $271, that's right, at a penny. Double check that math, I think that's right. Make sure that's right. Yeah, it's worth $271.54 at a penny a gallon, that acre inch. And they're saying it's worth 15 bucks? No, it costs you 15 bucks to pump it out. The pumping cost is not the, the issue. Uh, in a crop production deal, I know um, one, of our, one of our friends at Vernon presented some data on it last year, and he showed it for a $15 expenditure for pumping, you got about a $60 return on crop. So they're netting about $45 an acre for every inch they pump if they're not wasting a drop of it. Now, unfortunately, there's no agricultural system that's perfect, okay? The cost that's not, that's not attributed is the replacement cost of that water or its other value cost. So if you're at a two cent per gallon valuation, Say you've got a need, and even in oil and gas, they're one, they're you know they're doing oil water for one to two cents a gallon. So if you have water that's worth five hundred and fifty, just say two cents a gallon, it's five hundred fifty three dollars an acre inch. That costs you fifteen dollars to do. So you got a net of nearly five hundred thirty dollars an acre inch. Well, if you take twenty inches. To go to spend to burn up five hundred dollars worth of water to grow an acre of higher gate crop. We grew a thousand. We grew two or three thousand dollars worth of crop for ten thousand dollars worth of water expense. It's ultimately really tough math at the end of the day, and we're not talking going down the step of ethanol that turns into, you know. Um, that turns a third into CO2, a third into ethanol, and a third into feed product, the bushel of corn that goes there. So what is it? You know, is 43% of the U.S. corn crop goes to ethanol, I believe. Is that right? Something I, like that? I won't argue with 43. I've heard I've heard around 40%. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like 80% to cat or 40% to livestock, 40% to ethanol, um, and then like 17 per 17, 18% other uses and two percent for human consumption i think as far as you know total u.s corn crop well if you think about that 40 percent 
for livestock and you take a third of the ethanol goes back to livestock. So it really puts you close to 54, 55% going toward livestock. Yeah. And in the hogs and chickens and cattle and feedlots. Yeah. And I, and I would imagine that a lot of the byproduct from those ethanol plants, distillers grains, it all goes, it, it all goes. I mean, I, I think, you know, the corn, all, a lot of the corn and beans, you know, in quote biofuel crops, still end up as forage and feedstuffs for livestock somehow because after they go through the ethanol plant what are they going to do with the distillage grains it's not like they're going to go throw them back on the field no it's edible might as well take it to a feedlot and feed it to cows that's why putting those plants in places even though they're not near the corn production in places where there's feeding made a lot of sense to people that were putting them in you know we ship it this far it goes it gets sold as feed Part of it gets sold as feed, and then we ship it the rest away is in tankers as ethanol. But, but you think about it: if you took the ethanol fraction out of the market, there's a big chunk in the United States we wouldn't necessarily have to use for grain production, and and still be able to feed ourselves very well. You know. So some of it's job creation and some of it's the idea that we need it for feed, but reality is just moving resources around. It's just generally what government programs are is their jobs programs for other people. Mm -hmm. oh. So you got, you got any good fencing crew ideas or jobs programs? Uh, <laughs> no. Not without spending a bunch of somebody else's money, which is, again, another function of government. So let's uh, tell me, tell me your transition system and your, your transition system from from where you were in 2010, irrigated crops, 60 circles to where you're at today. And, and talk about what you've learned, because I think I'd hope that there's you know, more than one or two other people listening to this podcast that are where you were in 2010, that, you know, and maybe not exactly where you were, but so picture this commodity farmer with a bunch of circles, doesn't have a lot of great fence, wanting to make the shift that you started to make 13 years ago. So maybe kind of frame the discussion, you know, like that way. Okay. That's easy. Um, what we did, we basically, you just, you pick a spot, preferably, you know, on, on some land that's going to have the least negative impact on your finances and, and start moving uh, away from crop production there. Um, you know, if we, if you can do that and, and it seems like those areas, those lesser productive areas are actually the easiest ones to get back to get grass established on. Uh, I don't fully understand why. I know Dale Strickler and I talked about it and looked at it, and he it, it's, a, it's a fascinating deal. Um, the more irrigation water it's been on a field, the harder it is to get native grasses to go back on it, the longer it takes. It's a weird scenario without irrigation, that is. I don't know if it's salt or if it's excessive nutrients. We tend to think it's excessive nutrients because we live where we live. We have a lot of, our soils have uh, relatively high uh, phosphate levels, which is probably a little bit anti-mycorrhizal. Um, and uh, yet we can get other plants to grow there. 
uh, it, it takes us longer to get uh, the mycorrhizal fungi uh, is what I'm going to say established on those formerly heavily fertilized irrigated fields than on the dry land areas. Um, Have you done any soil testing or anything to, to, to kind of correlate some of that? No, we're working on that. We're, that's kind of where we're going. We're we, it's expensive. We, I get it. You know, and and we have we have we have lots of previous uh, data on soil test. Uh, what we have seen as we move toward getting our organic matter stabilized in those fields, which is means or move up or as they move upward more by. The elimination of you know when when you eliminate the tillage and you started moving back that direction it takes a little bit of time for your organic matters to really start reading true and they start they do move up we do they do move up and that transition from uh crops and and with intermittent uh fallow bear periods or, or back to uh weeds and grasses and 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 covers we did we you know we to say we don't do covers that's not truthful um we have had really good luck with some things like some black oats and troy oats and dairy oats and 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 a little bit of barley and and things like that along with to try to establish grasses i mean we've had really good luck doing that with those perennials um much better than a killed than a killed cover often times i mean i've been um putting putting those in with the more species of grasses we put in with our perennials it just seems like we get them started better um which is totally counterintuitive and i can't explain why maybe just under on ours that it works that way but um we went down that road of you just you, you start moving that direction by getting whether you're putting weed or oats or sorghums or something like that and leaving that residue there and then in our area the ideal time that we plant grasses is any front time from december 1st till actually into early june is actually our best window that we have a big window to plant it so planter capacity is not a real big issue um and 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 you just keep moving that direction uh, the problem you run into is your first few years is that when you go from crop income to just expenditure trying to get things changed over to the point where you can have some more livestock income, you can get livestock income pretty quick because that's um, that's a pretty good way to manage the the excessive above ground biomass is flash grazing. Yep. had really good luck even early on you know when when the grass establishment period just flash graze it let some hoof action out there and get across it and keep rolling so you get some income but you, you're you're changing your income streams and your income timings and those are the things that make it difficult um but what what we've seen uh it, from our perspective is is Imagine the acres that we've moved away from being dependent upon uh, crop insurance checks. Um, now that doesn't benefit me, but that certainly benefits my fellow man or fellow American if 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 they know they don't have to subsidize quite as many acres for droughts and things like that. Because quite frankly, 
even though crop production's been harder, forage production's still been pretty decent during this dry period we're in right now. I mean, we didn't get any rain till the end of July, and and we got July, August, and then a little bit, and then some early September rains, and then it shut off again. But in that six to eight week period, we pretty much grew. Uh, it's where you were, we were talking about earlier about timing of rainfall. Yes, it was theoretically too late for us. And yet we grew enough grass that it bought us another year. I mean, it bought us a year in, in for, for that period. So it's amazing how efficient those grasses are that can put a seed head out that can go from laying there essentially dormant because they don't have enough moisture to really green up to putting a seed head out and being well past the early stages of production, you know, 30 to 60 days, those grasses are moving on. And, and we can't do that with most cultivated crops. You know, it's not like wheat. We plant in September, October, and we harvest it in June or July or corn we plant in April or May and we harvest in September, October, November. I mean, all those take way more than 30 to 60 days to, to get to, from emergence to, to seed, to full finished seed. And I think that's the advantage of those types of grasses, all those native species that, that you've talked about. I mean, some of them take longer than that, but um, have you had any, have you seen, on places where in, in Kansas where y'all been, um, have you? If, how often do you see it where they don't? Uh, are they? Have you seen anybody that just let it go back to grass on its own? As far as a farm field, yes. Um, I'm I'm gonna say no. I don't have any like direct firsthand knowledge of that. Um, so. When we started talking, you know, I, I, my ranch is about 7,000 acres and it's all grass. And I can look on Google Earth and I can come up with pretty close to 500 acres that were farmed at one point in time across the acres that I'm controlling now. There's only about 340 of 340 acres, according to the Farm Service Agency of this of this ranch that farm. was ever farmed so uh, some of it obviously some of it in my mind would have gone back before you know the farm service agency was ever established so i think there were some early homesteaders out here that broke out some that broke out some hilltops farmed around them there's like the farming ridge around the top of the hilltop uh-huh big erosion gully blow through both you know blow through it on each side go down fill up the canyon i've got that in a couple places um, so when my, my dad came out here to take over this operate, take over this land full time in late 1984, there still was a couple of farm fields on the South end. And that was one of the first things he did because the only, the only farm tractor that he got out of the, out of the whole meal deal was a 65 horsepower open cab Massey Ferguson tractor that dated back to the mid fifties. Awesome. I mean, I'm, there was probably a couple small farm implements around here that were that were not very serviceable, because the the ranch spent like ten years in receivership while it was you know while they were working out of state issues with the court. So like for ten years, it was just kind of like, you know, this is what it is, and 
that land that that ground really wasn't farmed i don't think um so when dad got it when dad took it over in the in the mid 80s he was he just planted it all back to grass he didn't know what else to do he's just like well i'll just plant it all back to grass and the thing to do at the time um this is he told me this a year or two ago is he went and he borrowed the grass drill tractor wouldn't pull it so he just put the pickup in four low and first geared got a bottle of tequila and he you know, just drove around out there and planted grass. And at the time, it was just grass seed. Just grass seed. And a lot of that ground really struggled until the early 2000s. And I think it was uh, it was 98 or 99, Dad went back and got some Forbes and planted some Forbes in there. Y'all, Forbes are probably what most of y'all call pasture weeds. Okay. There's no such thing as a weed. It's all just different kinds of cow feed. So that's when, so when he planted the Forbes in there, then, you know, some of the taller native grasses started to come back. A couple of fires, change up, change up how we did grazing, went to faster moves, shorter graze periods, higher stock densities, more paddocks. And the more we lean on that, the better the grass gets in those old farm field areas. So, there's, you know, the, what really made the change? Was it the Forbes seed? Was it the change in management? Was it the fire? Or was it the combination of all of them? Well, from other ranches, I think it has to be kind of a combination of of most of that. Um, you know, you got to rebuild the seed bank. has to be grazed properly. And then when it does start to kind of come back, I think I think our native grasses out here, they, they need to have some kind of fire component periodically um, in order in order to give them the right biological signals, in order to give that gra those grass plants the right biological signals, and maybe it has something to do with um, the soil microbiome. I'm not real sure. But you, I, go ahead. You see that with the, do you see that same thing with heavy grazing? See, I think in our area, we're so anti-fire, and I don't think fire is bad, but I know that extremely hard wintertime grazing and we get it we get some moisture behind that even in where it's a solid stand of weeds we'll start seeing the grass come in the off season not the green grazing but in the brown grazing season that the harder we can be on during the brown grazing sometimes that hell really wakes it up and stimulates it to turn to grass i would agree i i would generally agree and I'll also say that I don't really think that during the dormant season, when all your grass is brown, that it's really possible to do overgrazing. Exactly, like, but that's that's a, not a thing in December. That's a common complaint of people that are tilling ground uh, near us. Or the see that we'll, I mean, we run a we run about six hundred females in one group. Okay. And they see those six hundred females trampling in that thing and beating it. I mean, we're, we are not consistent on, there are some fields we purposely leave them longer because of the type of residue that's there to try to really, if we see some more oxidation there or whatnot, I want to get rid of that oxidation. I want every bit of it gone before I go to the next field, even though I may give up some animal performance. If it's doing it when the calf's in the belly and the calf is not on the ground, I don't see as much negative effect of doing that to that animal. And it's just like the body condition score of the cow 
if she gets skinnier in the winter time, but she still has enough nutrients to make it and produce a good healthy calf and get the calf born and the spring flush, maybe she's the calf is born right at the beginning of the spring flush or something like that. If we get one of those spring flushes, which we most of the time we get something. Um, that seems to be more ideal. I mean, it just seems like these cows are tougher than we give them credit a lot of times. They're a lot tougher than we give them credit. And that biocycling from skinny to fat, skinny to fat throughout the year, I think it actually enhances longevity, not decreases longevity because you get some extra weight off those bones and joints that they don't need to carry all the time. It's just like bulls that have way too much fat in their testicles. You, you start getting subpar par fertility where if you, if they work it off and, 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 and I'm not saying work it off during the breeding season, but if, if they're out on a pasture that, uh, in a grazing scenario that their nutrients levels go up and they go back down and spring's coming and breeding season's coming to the, in the later summer that, uh, that they're on a higher plane of nutrition. Well, their fertility recovered just fine. Most of the time. I mean, if it's, I, I think feeding our way to, to a constant body condition score is economically unviable in, in my book. You can feed condition and fertility into anything. Like you just got to get your checkbook out. And, you know, uh, to tag in with what you're saying about uh, body condition. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that think you got to keep them cows in a five or six all year. You know, when you're, you got to have that cow at a body condition six prior to calving um i i think some of that is is out of date um i go back to Absolutely. what I, and i think burt teichert is who i heard this from first he said as long as that cow is on a rising plane of condition she'll start cycling so that means if you've got you know if your cows are threes and they're moving towards fours and fives they're going to be fertile and cycling but if your cow's at a six and maintaining a six, she's going to be less likely to cycle and less fertile during those cycles. That's the way I interpret that. That's exactly how I interpret it. Okay. Now I wanted to loop back around uh, to burning. <laughs> yes. Burning versus over heavy grazing. So my thoughts are this. You know, we, we, I said I don't feel like overgrazing in the dormant season is a thing. Like brown grass graze it down, leave them in there a month, whatever, you know, watch for other signs of when you're going to move rather than, rather than how much forage they're taking or how many days they've been there. So yes, theoretically, if we're in an ultra high stock density type, you know, grazing system, you know, 50, 50,000 pounds. Okay. I'd put the floor of that at 25,000 pounds per acre. That's, that's where I consider ultra high density grazing start. I see you're making notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I think 50 is a good place to be. Like if you can manage about 50, if you've got the forage for 50,000 pounds an acre stock density on a daily move, I think that's, I think that's a, that's probably about where you are. That's about where I am. You know, some years it's you know, a little closer to 40, 42. Some years it's probably a little more than that. Anyway, so as we're, as we're marching across, you know, moving daily and really concentrating that stock density, you know, okay, if we're, we're getting the, 
we're eating a quarter of it, we're peeing on a quarter of it, we're pooping on a quarter of it, and we're laying on the other quarter of it. What what burning primarily does, for those of y'all that aren't big into fire culture and, and practitioners of, not, not even going to talk about like brush management of the fire, just what it does for the grass. So if you go, like generally here in southern Kansas, if I burn, regardless of what the, the rainfall is, I will have greater grass production per inch of rainfall in the year after a fire. And that's kind of like on a five-year diminishing returns. Okay. So after about five, six years after fire, I'm kind of down to baseline production. And if I want to boost that, I got to run a fire across it. There's also the argument to be made that, you know, that the unused forage that does start to oxidize. And what that looks like to me is when the understory of your plant is no longer brown, when it starts to be gray and black, that's when those plants are decadent and they're oxidizing and that, and that material static. It's not palatable to cattle anymore. Nothing's going to eat it. And the way to reset that is either stomp it into the ground and pee on it or put fire on it. And if you put fire on it, that has, that has the added benefit of resetting that plant and resetting that plant's growth cycle and sending better growth signals down to that plant. And you end up with more nutritious forage than you would if you just grazed it down to dirt. That's just been my experience. Now, granted, you know, a lot of the, the quote ice cream grass that we're going to have that's come back real strong after fire is going to be Indian grass and big blue stem grass, which both of those are extremely sensitive to overgrazing. So burning, I, I think burning definitely, you know, there's always pluses. There's always pros and cons to, to everything we want to look at. And I think that, you know, that burning as a management practice definitely should have a place in the toolbox of a land manager on the plains. The trick is, is figuring out how to, figuring out the correct context in which to apply the fire. Right? Mm-hmm. Burn bad, too much wind. <laughs> but real context is, is if you can tie how how much trouble have you gotten in going ahead of a drought? I think it's not really matter that much. You can put yourself in a hell of a crack burning going into a drought and not managing well. Okay. Like I we've got we've got the oldest prescribed burn group in the state, oldest organized prescribed burn group in the state. I know because I helped organize it. Uh, and we we didn't burn anything last year. Normally, if we turn back to 2019, I think we did 15 burns as a group and something like 30 odd thousand acres. I think we got burned that year. 2020 was a lot less. There was nothing last year and there's likely to be nothing again this year. Um, well, I'll take that back. There were a few burns last year. There were no dormant season burns last year. Nobody was brave enough to burn in the dormant season. The few people that did burn burned in late june and in july and august okay so growing season burns are starting to be more of a thing and yeah like um you know here in the middle plains it's we're recording this it's uh beginning of march 
in a normal year, our burn season would be basically opening about now. You know, now would be about the time time that guys would be starting to look now till about April 15th, which is kind of when that window starts closing. What we found is that if you wait till literal summer, like after the third week of June, you'll still have that, that oxidized, decadent, ungrazable, unpalatable stuff down at your understory, but it's surrounded by green. And you find a day that's about seven to 10 mile an hour worth of wind where it's, you know, not a hundred degrees and not under 20% humidity, it's a pretty easy fire to control because you've got a lot of green growth already down there. And the fire just kind of goes over the green and burns all the brown stuff out. So we've had pretty good luck with summer burns. Early summer, late summer, I've done them both and been happy either way. Um, you know, not all on my place, but, you know, neighbors. It's nothing to just, you know, take a take a little 10-minute road trip and go drive past the neighbor's pasture. I know when they were burnt. <laughs> kind of have a rough idea, you know, how they how they have cattles in, cows in it. But, uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time driving around and looking at what ground looks like and thinking back to the burns that we did on that ground and, and looking at the plants that are there. So that's... I guess that's kind of my two cents on burning. Um, man, we've been at this dang near two hours. A couple, <laughs> questions, couple questions I want to ask you about your vet practice. How much do you have a practice? So it's not like you work. It's you're not a feedlot vet, right? You don't go to a feedlot and work every day. Do I have that right? That's correct. I do. Here's here's what we have. Yes, I have a couple clients that, well, we have a, we do have a, uh, I tend to do work in, in, in the neighborhood as far as uh, large animal uh, veterinary medicine services, you know, testing bulls, posting dead cattle, checking, you know, just whatever. Uh, and uh, yes, some of them are tied to a confined feeding. Uh, some are tied to stalker, some are tied to cow calf. And in our mix of our practice, though, we do a lot of companion animal medicine, which also includes herding dogs and guard dogs and things like that. Um, so we're kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, but uh, do a fair amount of surgery and things like that. So it's a totally different direction than our farming day to day life. It's, it's, wearing different hats in the community there for a second. I thought you were going to tell me that, no, I don't do large animals at all. I'm a small animal vet, I, you know, squirrels and reptiles are my thing. But anyway. Um... <laughs> and actually from an economics perspective, if it wasn't, if you were truthful to yourself, that would probably be the best way to, uh, subsidize the next generation coming into ranching <laughs> would be to be that exotic vet in the next nearest town that because it, it's going to be a rare bird. Oh, people will pay way more to try to fix a dog than they would to try to fix a cow. Yeah, they, you know, you, I, I think it's a real, you know, I kind of like the Australian's view of, of large animal medicine to some degree that yeah, if it if it can't fix itself, eliminate it, and, and and that's horrible to say that, but that I am one of those people, 
And, and people look at me like, what do you mean you don't pull calves on your cows? Well, I very seldom pull a calf on a cow because we have selected and put a herd together of livestock that we don't have to pull very many animals, like ever. Um, and uh, no, we do not calve next to the house because they're always on the move. So, uh, and we also run sheep and we will intervene in our sheep. But partly that is because we have added some additional genetics that we didn't have before. And we want to kind of watch how they come about to see if we added a problem. And I think we actually probably added in better animals durability wise than what we already had. So I think that's, that's a good thing. So it's a funny deal. So yes, I'll do, I'll take $400 or $800 to do a C-section on your dog, Brian. Okay. but i but i know you'll be mad at me if i charge more than a hundred dollars on the cow and i can't do that (laughs) gosh we humans sure are funny things aren't we yeah the part that feeds us we don't feed back and the part that doesn't feed us we give everything to (laughs) but i love my dog and that's just a cow they're all god's creatures yeah man we there's so much we didn't even talk about. I'm glad I made like a page and a half worth of prompts and notes because I didn't even look at them. I'm sorry I messed up your schedule here. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's perfectly fine. We'll just have to have you. We'll just plenty of stuff to talk about if I can ever convince you to do this again. Wonderball. Um, well, uh, anything you want to close with? I think that the future is bright as long as we realize what uh, what the current situation is. And that's, that's on so many levels of life. Um, anybody needs to, you know, maybe has a question or comment about it or has an idea for me. I mean, uh, I'm pretty open with my contact. It's 806-344-5111. That is a cell phone. Uh, text me, and I'll call you back at my earliest convenience. Um, that's usually the easiest way to get a hold of me. Just send me a text or an email, which is my last name, G-R-O-T-E-G-U-T, at WTRT.net. And at TRT.net? WTRT.net. WestTexasRuralTelephone.net is what that stands for. And um, God bless America and apple pie and all those good things that go along with it. And uh, good luck to those that are trying to figure out how to adapt to the future of the planes. Oh, it's it's going to be interesting. That's for sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be exciting. It'll be exciting. All right. I I appreciate your time today, Chris, and uh, we are recording this on a Friday, so I'll let you go start your weekend, and the rest of you all out there in podcast land, you guys go get on with your week. Back, Back to work. See you, Brian. See you, Chris.